So do you want to turn back with me to Matthew 16 for part two? And um, we looked at the church that Jesus is building. And in this moment, I want to look at how. Now, for some of you, I'm going to sorely disappoint you because some of you type A, get stuff done type leaders, you're like, the how, that's what I'm here for. Give me the 10 things I need to be doing in my church. I'm going to disappoint you. My apologies. Well, my fake apologies. I'm not really apologizing. Um, I, I, I want to talk about our heart because I think when Jesus teaches in this moment, he talks about something that is vitally important inside of us that will actually shape us as a church because it's who we are, isn't it? It's uh, much more than what we are doing. And we do need, I mean, it's interesting just hearing the themes that are coming out. You know, it's, we're praying for leaders. It feels like we all need more leaders. Uh, we all are desperate to see more people come to Christ. Amen. Lots of issues with buildings, no buildings, buildings with heating systems, want different buildings, whatever it might be, being kicked out of buildings, but buildings are a thing. And it's important that we pray for these things because they can really open up ministry for us. Um, But in all of this, I think Jesus speaks to us as an approach, not just to how to manage these things, but to how to approach all of church life, whether we are in leadership or part of the church or brand new to the church. Um, and in this moment, in, in Mark 16, we really come to like the turning point in Matthew's gospel. Mark 16 is, in a sense, the half-time. Up to this point, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been walking on water. He's been feeding the 5,000. He has been doing amazing things, spectacular things. People have been gathering to Jesus just to see the stuff that he's doing. And at this point, Jesus has traveled the furthest north that he's going to get, like me, over this weekend, before I head back down to London. He has got to Caesarea Philippi. And at this moment, there is literally a turning point because they start heading south to Jerusalem. But this turning south also marks a theological and a ministry change for Jesus. And this change all happens when Jesus takes his disciples aside. And for the first time, Peter says, we know who you are now. We've seen the stuff you've been doing. You are the Christ. We trust you. And on the back of this confession, Jesus says, with this, I'm going to build my church. And then he starts a brand new module in his discipleship with his friends. And we read this in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So you have to understand the flow of what's going on here. Peter confesses, Christ, we know who you are now. Jesus says, bingo, the Father has revealed this to you. I'm going to build my church on the declaration, on the cornerstone of my name. And now you need to see how I'm going to do that is I'm now going to Jerusalem to suffer 
and die. Do you, do you see the logic of that word? Jesus? And he began what for the disciples was a new thing. Like, okay, they thought we're going into power, miracles, signs, political acceptance. And Jesus starts talking about suffering and crucifixion and difficulty. And so for them, they were like, hang on, aren't you supposed to be the Messiah? But for Jesus, this is not new. This is not like a new, like, okay, you've done the basics, like power miracles module, tick. Now we're going to move on to the cross-shaped ministry. And Jesus wasn't even changing strategy. He wasn't like, okay, so for a year or so, we've tried miracles, power, walking on water. Did you like that trick? I can do more. That didn't work very well. So let's try the suffering approach to ministry. He's not changing tack because what he says, Matthew says that Jesus showed his disciples. It's interesting. He doesn't say he tells them. He shows, how does Jesus show them that he is going to suffer? I am assuming that Jesus in these moments, time and time again, was walking through the Old Testament and showing them how God has always worked through weakness. And the prophetic words have always been of a Messiah who will suffer on behalf of his people. I'm assuming that the Bible study that Jesus did with the disciples on the way to Emmaus, you know, when he did that Bible study, he says, from Moses and the prophets, he showed them in all of the scriptures about himself, how he must suffer and die. My assumption is that Jesus was doing this Bible study over and over again with the disciples, showing them from different passages. They was walking from town to town, home to home, the different moments where God promised that suffering would be part of how the kingdom is extended. For them, it was new. But for Jesus, he was just showing them, this is how life happens with God. This is how we're going to build the church. Peter later got this because he later writes in 1 Peter and he talks about Jesus when, when the lights kind of go on after quite a few ups and downs and blips. Because he writes, he says, as you come to him, church, a living stone rejected by men. We are being, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter later got it. He understood that when Christ suffers, this is the cornerstone on which the church is built. But the funny thing in this moment, or it's not funny, it's funny in the biggest generic, you know, pour any kind of meaning into the word funny that you want to. It's funny because in Matthew 16... His reaction is actually, I think, probably a lot like your reaction or my reaction. Like, can't we talk about something encouraging after lunch type reaction? Like, do you really have to do another session on suffering after lunch type reaction? Like, can we do a bit more of a hoo-ha before we go back to our churches tomorrow? This is Peter. I like Peter because... Because I think he was probably extrovert, like loud mouth. He was confident, stroke overconfident. And so you know those people who ask questions in class and they actually ask the questions that sound dumb, but everyone else is actually asking. I think Peter represents for us the extroverted out there version of what happens in a lot of our hearts. Yeah? Especially if you're English and you like to keep things kind of, keep the veneer going. You feel all sorts of things, but you can smile at the same time and just pretend you're still godly. 
Peter actually represents it and personifies it for us, which is why he's so helpful. And so Peter, after Jesus saying, I'm going to go now to Jerusalem, this is, this is, he has just said, you are the living God, okay? And this is Peter's reaction to what Jesus says about his ministry. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Amazing. Confidence. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. I actually know how this should go down. Stop being such a Debbie Downer. Things aren't going to be as bad as you think they are. You are the Christ, right? Buck up. Be the Christ. Go to Jerusalem. Tell them who you are. I'm with you. We'll be all right. I've got a sword on my side. Says, this shall never happen to you. Peter's there by his side. Like, I'm with you, right? This is not going to happen. You're the Christ. You can do this. I think Peter, being so full of himself, probably thought that Jesus was like doubting himself at this point. Like, come on. You've been doing the stuff in the past. Just do it again in Jerusalem. Just stay confident, Jesus. Believe in yourself. (laughs) You You get like... But I think he represents like a lot of what our heart to this kind of message of like Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer many things. My church is going to be on my sacrifice and on my death. And we're like, not in the West. That's not going to happen. We've got a different way of doing church around here. And it's based on coffee and donuts and nice refreshments and people having comfy seats. So like, and in the West, we're going to do it slightly differently, if that's all right. Different ways of like, we can, we want to, I mean, who's, who's signing up for this module? No, in fact, they keep trying to fight to get out of this kind of module. They're going down to Jerusalem and we're told again and again, Jesus goes through this Bible study a lot. And even in the middle of these Bible studies, they still go off and have a discussion as to about who is going to get like the left-hand seat and the right-hand seat in the government of power with Jesus. And they're still coming to Jesus. Like, you know you said about that whole suffering and dying thing. Well, we're actually thinking that you should start a political party and we're going to overthrow the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So could I... Like, they're still planning and plotting. It's like Jesus is speaking... I'm not listening. We've got our own ideas about how church should go down. And so you have Jesus and Peter, or I could say Jesus and us, or Jesus and me, if you feel annoyed by me saying that about you. But you're northerners, right? So you like to be blunt. Is that right? Jesus and me, right, okay. Thanks, Alan. Jesus and me, we're great friends. Jesus and Peter, like, at one level, they are both passionate about exactly the same thing. Jesus came for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God. He is bringing the kingdom. And Peter has caught this vision. He's like, I am in for the kingdom. They've left businesses. They've relocated. They say, I'm in it for the kingdom. I want to be building the kingdom with Jesus. And so these two are side by side for the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus, when he looks forward to building the kingdom, what he sees is a valley filled with shadows of death. 
He sees a valley that is marked by a cross that looms over his whole life. He sees suffering. He sees difficulty. He sees people who don't like him. And yet when Peter, passionate about exactly the same thing, he sees a yellow brick road with exciting moments and exciting prayer meetings and promotion and joy and esteem and applause and going up in the world and things getting nicer and more comfortable and being finally recognized for all the hard work that I've put in over these years. And so at one level, they're exactly the same. And at another level, they are building completely different things. Do you understand? You can be in one church and yet have completely different visions about how the kingdom is going to be established. Peter had this idea of political kind of progression. They basically thought there was a nice, like there was the, uh, the set who were established in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they had the political center ground. They had a bit of money. People respected them. They would have had the nice YouTube channels. They would have had the glamour channels. They would have been like, this is, and basically Peter's idea is we're going to do that, but better with Jesus. That is going up. And Jesus is just looking down at a cross, saying this, this suffering, this cross is going to be the foundation on which my church is going to be built. And when we stop and think about it long enough, we realize that Peter's attitude so quickly becomes my attitude <laughs> and our attitude if we're not careful. And it gets worse. Verse 23. Jesus turns to Peter and he says to me, get behind me, get behind me, Peter. No, he doesn't. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. What? Have you ever had feedback on a bit of ministry that you've done? <laughs> I just felt like there was some satanic attitude in the way you led kids work on Sunday. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. I mean, this is Peter who's literally just said like, we're with you, Jesus. Be confident. We've got this. Get Behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. This is Peter who is at the center of Jesus' church. This is a leader in the church hindering the work of Jesus. Jesus essentially saying to you, with this, Peter, I cannot move forward. When Jesus says in uh, verse 16, the, the verse that gets your blood going if you're like this kind of stuff. Sorry, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we all get a bit Pentecostal for a moment. Think, Amen. I imagine that verse like this. I imagine that verse, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, like the battle at Helm's Deep. Anyone with me? Any geeks with me? Amen. You've got the church battened up in Helm's Deep. We have Gandalf, Steve Oliver. And we have Gimli. Who wants to be Gimli? 
I'm not looking at anyone, Alan. <laughs> I'm freestyling here, getting myself in trouble. We have Aragorn. I think Nico should be Aragorn. He's got that kind of like cool vibe about him. And we're in Helm's Deep. And the powers of the evil one, the orcs, are out there coming to destroy the church. But we, the church, will be victorious. Amen. We will fight the enemy out there. We will destroy the enemy out there. We have Christ with us. Amen. Except it's not quite how it goes down which is a bit annoying. There are enemy attacks from outside, from the world, that's true, but that's not what's happening right here. When Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, did Jesus know that the very man he was talking to would be part of that hindrance, stroke, power against the work of Jesus? Could we ever imagine that It's actually our attitudes and our approach to Jesus and our approach to church life that could be a hindrance actually within inside the church. That's when it gets a bit sobering. It's painful, right? I think that's what Jesus is saying. The gates of hell... And knowing that Peter is going to deny him, he, he always knows, Peter, you're the most overconfident denier of me at the same time, all the time. Left, right, left, right. He knew that actually this was about Peter. His attitudes were going to be stopping Jesus. Martin Luther, who is the German monk who sparked a great reformation and revival right across Europe that shaped Europe, that burned for decades and decades and decades that we still live in the good of today. When he first probably became converted, he, looking at the Catholic Church at the time, had 95 problems that he wanted to raise with the church. So he wrote them all down. And it's actually what you did in those days. We might tweet about it or Instagram it, but you would literally, there was a door, like you just got a beef with anyone in the church, someone in the town, you put a note up on the door. So he put 95 problems that he had with the church and nailed it to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And as he was doing that, he was mulling over some of the problem of the church. And I think if you and I are looking at the church back in that day, I mean, me as a church planter, we're about four and a half years old. Um, looking at the church then, they had everything that we pray for. They had really good buildings. Uh, they had money. Uh, everyone wanted to be a leader because it was like quite a favorable thing to do. So like they had everything going for them. I mean, it was, it was on one level, it was really going quite well. I think they got big buildings. I mean, today we still have tourists going to these buildings. They're really nice buildings, leaders, money, political acceptance. And yet Martin Luther looked at the church and he said, there is a big problem here. And I think reflecting on a passage like this, he saw that there were two approaches. There was the Jesus approach to ministry and there was the Peter approach to ministry. The Jesus approach to ministry, he called a theology of the cross. And a Peter approach to ministry, he called a theology of glory. And not like God's glory, as in glory of the world. Wealth, esteem, prestige, a place at the center stage of culture. And it wasn't that these are just 
different verses that you could read differently, but that you could read the same Bible verses and be in the same prayer meeting. You could be in the same church and you could view all of this with two very different approaches. Either one which is a descent into suffering and crucifixion or another which is ascent into a glorious life right here and right now. And he looked at the pomp and circumstance of the church of the day and he said that this church has been built with a theology of glory. With this understanding that actually the church and God works in the same way that the world works. That the power of the world is how God likes to work. So it just apes the things of the world. It says, I'm going to use these strategies. I'm going to use these kind of people. I'm going to use this kind of money. I'm going to put things in the center just like the world does. And that's how we're going to build our church. And yet the way that the God works is actually like Christ. It's a completely upside down way of looking at things and says, I'm going to walk into the margins and I'm going to walk into suffering. I'm going to walk into difficulty and I'm going to take up my cross with Jesus. Two totally different approaches. And I would bet in our honest moments, we have both of these attitudes in our hearts. In our good moments where we sense the Lord, we think, I'm, I'm willing, Lord. I'm willing to be forgotten. I'm willing to go to the margins. I'm willing to lead a life that's with you with a cross on my back. And there are other moments where we're like, no, I'll leave that for Sunday. Monday morning, I'm about different things. It's in us. But I think when there are, there are two pieces of wood that Jesus talks about in, the Matthew, in Matthew where we call to take up. The first one we looked at, and he says, Take my yoke on you, because my yoke is easy. These wooden things we're putting oxen to. And the other piece of wood we're told to lay on our back is a cross. And I, I, I don't think we should hear Jesus saying, take up your cross as a weight, as a heavy thing. I think these two pieces of wood that Christ talks about putting on our backs are the same thing. But actually to follow Christ where he goes and to walk with him into suffering and to crucifixion is actually the easy place. This is the place of rest where we are not trying to fight our way in the world, to use the world's strategies, to try and create a kingdom and a church on the same rules of the world. But we simply follow Jesus and let him build his church. Amen. I think in, in the West, we, we, ha- we have this tendency at the moment to flagellate ourselves on all sorts of ways. But in the church, and I know that I've done it myself, I think sometimes we can feel guilty because we hear of our brothers and sisters who are, are suffering in other places in the world. And sometimes Christians in the West say silly things like a bit of persecution would do us good. I mean, if you talk to your persecuted brothers and sisters, they would say it's a very silly thing to say. But there is this kind of like weird thing where we don't quite, we feel uncomfortable sometimes or we need to put something on. Like we need to, okay, Jesus said, take up his cross. What do I have to do? Like, what does that mean? 
I think it means simply following Christ, leaving our selfish ambition, leaving our worldly ideas of the future for our church, and looking to Jesus and following him. I think sometimes we, we, under, we underestimate some of the pain that we go through in the West as well. Like there is, real, there is real pain in church leadership. Just the everyday wear and tear of church leadership is, is exhausting sometimes. Anyone want to testify? <laughs> it, it can rip your heart out. People ghosting you and people mistreating you and speaking badly when you've tried to love, love them. <laughs> this is real pain that we walk through. There are so many ways in which we would want to isolate ourselves from the, the real life and to find a way in which we can just cut a path that is, that is easy. But there is real pain in this room, real difficulty, real weight, real heavy burdens, as Jesus talks about. That is part of this cross that we have taken up to follow him. So please don't put weight on your soul where Jesus is not putting weight on your soul. Christ gives grace to those who are suffering in persecuted churches to deal with their life. And Christ gives grace for you to deal with your life. You didn't choose to be born where you are, to be where you are, to do church where you are, but Christ has apportioned your time to be here and in this place and he will give you grace to live this life. So we take up this cross. And I think when, when Peter turns to, 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 when Jesus turns to Peter, sorry, I was just struck by this, this Jesus turning to look at Peter. Satan trying to get in the way of the work of the church. And I, I want to just for like, I don't actually know how long I've been preaching for now. So for a minute or two. I want, to, I want us to turn to ourselves, like inwardly. To, I want us, like Christ, to, just to look for a moment. I, I want to reflect to you, what are some of the ways in which we can try and be like Peter? Like, Lord, forbid it that we would do church without a little bit of suffering. Here are some thoughts for you. They're in no particular order. As Ali knows, when we do equip course, when I get to firstly, secondly, thirdly, after about the fourthly, I just, I just get to points. So... How might we be more like Peter so that we can be less like him? We trust in our own plans more than Jesus' leadership. That we have our ideas of church. I mean, I'd like Trinity Church London to get bigger. We're praying for a building. We'd like some more money. There are other things we want to do. But I don't know what Jesus' plan is. So we need to be careful that we come to our prayer meetings and to our leadership looking to Christ and we can ask for anything. That's the good news about having a father in heaven. We can ask for anything with this foundation that says, yeah, whatever we do get, we will follow you wholeheartedly. A theology of glory or walking the way of Peter might look like having a very strong theology of healing really no theology of suffering. Untold damage has probably been done in the church because we've 
prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for things. Sometimes things don't get answered the way we hope for. Because we lacked any understanding of how to pastor that or theologize that, well, let's just move on and not deal with that. My father-in-law um, was part of the church in York, uh, St. Michael Le Belfry, with some of slightly older folk who remember David Watson. And uh, he moved to London, and as soon as he moved to London, got cancer, and there was a huge outburst of prayer for healing. And my father-in-law's experience being in the church at the time where he was sent is huge prayers, faith, prophetic words given about he will be healed. This is not a sickness unto death. And yet he died. And his experience as a church member was that his death was never put into a framework of suffering. And it did a lot of damage for people's faith and belief and understanding of how does God does God heal then? What does that mean for the theology of... If we're going to have a strong theology of healing, we need to have a strong theology of suffering at the same time if we're going to build a ministry of healing. Amen? If we want to be like Peter, and I'm suggesting that we don't want to be like Peter, our prophetic ministry will always be about good things are coming tomorrow. Anyone had that? Next year, I see good things coming. This is your year of breakthrough. This is going to be your month of X, Y, and Z. The thing you've been hoping for, it's happening now. All to which I say yes and amen, because I want all the goodies. Like, give me the goodies. I'll take them. But if that's all we're prophesying, we have to think about Jesus' words. It says the church is going to be built on a cornerstone of rejection. So we just need to be careful. Spiritual power is not the secret source for exciting meetings. (laughs) I used to think it was. I'm praying for spiritual power because it makes church meetings less mundane. It's more exciting what's going to happen. I mean, it does have that effect. But when spiritual power comes, we're told in Acts, they were led into places of difficulty. And an ability to witness. And to witness quickly became synonymous with martyrdom. Because they realized, oh, to talk about Jesus actually causes problems. We thought we were starting a political party. Ah. Quickly it began to be associated with martyrdom. We're ambiguous with our doctrine. Because why be clear? Because if you can be ambiguous, you can try and keep everybody happy. But if you're clear and say, we believe this, then all these people are going to be unhappy with you. And if you're clear over here and say, we believe this, then all those people are going to be unhappy with you. So the path of least resistance, Peter's path, is let's just be clever and ambiguous. And if you follow some of the mainstream denominations of our day right now, you think, how well does that go down? Both sides end up being deeply unhappy. Arthur Wallace, he wrote in the day of thy power in his introduction, he said, how many today are really prepared to face the stark fact that we have been outmaneuvered by the strategy of hell because we have tried to meet the enemy on human levels by human strategy. Bit of blunt northern talk for you. 
how would we live like Christ? And then we're going to come to a time of ministry and prayer. How, how would we follow Christ in our, in our today? Just some reflections for us. We need to live lives that are shaped by the cross. The cross is not something that we say yes to, get our I'm a Christian card, and then move on to discipleship and church leadership and going upwards. The cross is something that marks the beginning and the middle and the end. Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right now, I am a crucified man with a crucified saviour. He lived his whole life marked by crucifixion. And so everything is shaped by the cross. How we think about church, how we think about our finances, how we think about what we celebrate and what we critique. It's all cross-shaped. We never move beyond it. We'll be walking through into the gates of heaven still as those crucified with Christ. Everything is to be shaped by this from beginning to middle. This is the power. This is the... Everything is shaped by the cross. We celebrate the faithfulness of others suffering. Jesus kept critiquing those who wanted to avoid suffering and just jump to cultural acceptance. In converse, I think we need to be those who celebrate those who are choosing to walk faithful and difficult paths. Applaud them. Ensure that we don't just applaud the moments of success, which we do. It stirs my heart. I'm so glad. But for those who are walking through times when it's barren and difficult, we applaud them. We affirm them. We speak words of grace and truth over their lives as they follow Christ where God has called them to. We pray for spiritual power with proper expectations. Knowing that sometimes when we pray for the Spirit's power in our prayer meetings, it doesn't lead to more exciting meetings tomorrow. It might lead to difficult conversations with a colleague. And that is the Spirit's work. Cross-shaped Spirit's work. Tom Smell, he said this, the mark of the cross rests upon every expression of the Holy Spirit's activity. I think we'll have a Jesus-shaped view of numbers as well. Peter, he was going for this large thing. And Jesus, Jesus kept him to make it smaller and smaller. I mean, I'm not, there is no benefit. I mean, there's no moral virtue in having a big church or a small church. I know we feel like big church, better, small church, worse. That's the world's thinking. That's the theology of glory. There's no, there's no more. We need every time a church. We need churches with big buildings like this. Thank you, Alan, for putting in the hard graph so we can be here. And we need small churches that can reach local communities. We need every type of church. But we, we have to unlearn the world's thinking that bigger is always better. I mean, I, I think, you know, some of you guys here, and it's been said, like, are planting and leading churches in some of the most difficult ground in the UK to reach. Like, sociologists would tell us that. Places like London 
I just, you know, we're being propped up by the global south. We've been propped up by God-fearing nations who are traveling to London because there's jobs and union stuff. And like, so we, we've got a, like a, we've got a helping hand. <laughs> well, we're not doing any, okay, the churches are bigger in London, maybe. But that's because there are people flooding to London from countries that are majorly Christianized. And some of you guys are in churches where you are reaching some of the hardest communities. And so we need to break off any thinking that says you, you must be growing exponentially. Did you grow this year? Like what horrendous weight to live with that you have to grow each year. X percent, X percent, X percent, X percent. Especially living in a cultural moment like this. Could it be that Christ looks with such pleasure on small churches of 20 people? He says, you are doing my work, the apple of my eye. Keep going. So we need to detox from numbers. To be happy with or without position. And we need to keep listening to Jesus. In chapter 17, and we're going to close here, Jesus takes the disciples, having heard these difficult things, he takes them up the mountain to the Mount of Transfiguration, what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration, and he is, as it were, affirming to Peter and his friends that the confession that they made about him is correct. Because at the end of a moment like this, you think, hmm, do I, <laughs> do I really want to sign up for Together 24? It's not quite... Uh... And so Jesus takes them up the mountain and he reveals to them who he is. And the Father reveals again that they were right. This is the son of the living God. And the father says to them, as they see the glory of Christ, this is true. The father backs his son up and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Keep listening to him and you will not go wrong. So as I close, I want to say regions beyond, keep listening to Jesus. Keep the Bible open. When we feel the temptations to avoid, keep listening to him. He's got the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else we can turn. He has the words. So we listen to him. Amen. Let's pray together. And then I think Ali's uh, or Dan's going to lead us in some ministry. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. And I, I pray now, Lord, as we started, would you, I pray that you would remove any wrong thinking, break off any strongholds. Lord, I pray particularly about our understanding of taking up our cross. Lord, we all confess to resistance to that. But Father, I pray, Lord, where the enemy has created strongholds of understanding as to what that actually means, I pray that you would break it off pray, Lord, as we put that wood on our back, we might find that this yoke is easy. In Jesus' name, amen.